Two things before I begin today. Uh, first of all, if you think I preach too long on Sunday mornings, you'll love Thursday nights because I only preach about seven minutes. So that alone may be worth coming to worship on Thursday night. Uh, second, I just appreciate the praise band so much. Proclaim, um, we just finished a sermon series we called the Summer Concert Series, and they learned like tunes from Garth Brooks and Carrie Underwood and Dolly Parton and Kansas and REO Speedwagon. And we sang those songs as part of worship, believe it or not, to see what God might have to say to those songs and what those songs might have to speak into our faith. It was a really neat series, and we're going to do it again next year. So um, just uh, wanted you to be aware of kind of the creative things that we're doing in this service, some different things maybe that you might not be able to get away with on a Sunday morning, but uh, we're trying some, some, some crazy things in order to attract people to the love and the grace of God. Um, over the last several weeks, we first of all focused on some of the things that God does in our lives, and then in recent weeks, I've been focusing on the things that maybe God requires in our lives. In fact, calling the series Action Required. And so today's text is from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. And the title of the sermon, and indeed what I think is the action required, is to look beyond yourself. To look beyond yourself. It was not unusual in Jesus' day for a person with an unresolved dispute to seek out a rabbi or a teacher for some help with the unresolved dispute. And uh, faithful Jews in Jesus' day didn't want to take their disputes to civic court because civic court was presided over by non-Jewish people. These were actually Gentiles that were a part of the civic court. And so a good faithful Jew would want uh, someone who was Jewish to rule over the dispute because they wanted somebody that was steeped in God's law and they wanted somebody steeped in Jewish tradition in order to help them. And so that's why this man comes to Jesus in our passage of Scripture this morning. And on the surface, it seems like his dispute is really one of those cut and dry kind of things. It's just clear what should happen. When a father dies, uh, all of the inheritance should be divided among all of the surviving sons of the father. With one exception, the older son gets a double portion of inheritance. And, and it was also pretty cut and dry that when the father died, then the eldest son became the patriarch of the family. And so, this bag comes to Jesus, it, it, it's pretty clear cut, but maybe there's something that we don't understand that's happening here in the, in the story. Why, why does he come to Jesus with this dispute if, if this really is a clear cut case? Well, the story doesn't tell us, but perhaps the reason why this man comes to Jesus is because his older brother has not given him his inheritance like he was supposed to. Now, there are some of you, my wife's probably one of them, detail-oriented people here in this congregation, detail-minded, and you're like, well, wait a minute, Tommy. This text doesn't say that uh, this guy's brother was older. How are you arriving at that decision? 
And I would say to you, well, no, the text doesn't say whether or not this guy is older, but there are some clues that help us to think that maybe this guy is uh, talking about an older brother that he has the dispute with. And that's because the older brothers would be the one, because they're now the patriarch of the family, they're the ones that's supposed to make sure that God's laws are being kept and that Jewish tradition is being honored. And so the fact that this guy wants someone to help his brother to give him what is his, maybe this guy is just not doing what he's supposed to do. And if you hear that in the story at all, then it almost sounds like when Mary and Martha's story that we had a few weeks ago, when Martha went to Jesus and she said, do you not care that my sister is not doing what she's supposed to be doing in the kitchen with me? That's essentially what this younger brother might be saying in our story today. Jesus, do you not care that my older brother still hasn't given me my share of the inheritance. And yet, that's not the only explanation for why this brother goes to Jesus about his brother. Maybe this younger brother is acting in some ways like another younger brother that Luke tells us about in his Gospel. You remember the story of the prodigal son and about how the younger brother went to his father, the younger son went to his father and said, Father, give me what I've got coming to me when you die so that I can go off to a faraway place and just squander it away and do whatever it is that I want to do with it. Maybe that's what's going on in the story this morning. Maybe this Younger brother wants to be like that younger brother, and he just wants his stuff, and he wants it now. Or maybe that's why Jesus doesn't get involved. Maybe Jesus doesn't get involved because uh, he doesn't want to get involved in a family squabble. But this seems somewhat of a surprise to me. Because the Scripture is full of stories about people who are respected leaders in their community that would often get involved to help people in their community settle their disputes. Why, one of the greatest patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament, Moses, spent the early part of his ministry engaged in pursuits of trying to help people settle their differences in their lives. But maybe Jesus doesn't get involved because He's not your run-of-the-mill prophet. Maybe He doesn't get involved because Jesus understands His role is that He's got some bigger fish to fry in this story. He is not going to get into petty pursuits of property among people. But maybe Jesus doesn't get involved is because he is able to detect that it is greed that prompts this brother to come to Jesus wanting help with his other brother. And maybe Jesus doesn't get involved because he's decided that he doesn't want to be a judge in this situation. He wants to be a teacher in this situation. And he doesn't want to just teach the brother that has come to him with the dispute. Luke says that when he begins to teach, that he wants to teach 
all the people, everybody that was there that day that were in the crowd. And the point that he wants to make is to be on guard against the ways that greed can operate in our lives. And then Jesus proceeds to tell a parable. Now, a parable is not a real-life event, although it can be formed by real, informed by real-life events. A parable is just a story with a spiritual lesson. It's a lot like a fable. There's just something that you're supposed to take with it. And because it's not a real-life event, it can be informed by them, but it's not of itself. You often find, find in parables that something has been exaggerated made much bigger or different than might normally be the case in order to make the point. And that's exactly what has happened here. Jesus begins to tell a parable. Now I want to suggest to you that when Jesus begins to tell this parable, that immediately the people that are hearing the story begin to envy the main character in the story. Because the main character is about a good old country boy. A farmer who had a piece of land that he planted crops on and it produced abundantly. And the prevailing theology of Jesus' day is that if you had a piece of land and it produced an abundant crop, that that was a sign of God's favor. That was a sign of God's blessing. That was a sign of God's goodness. And so the fact that this guy had a piece of property that produced such an abundant crop, everybody in the audience at the beginning of this parable would have envied him because clearly God favors this guy. Clearly God has blessed this guy. Clearly God's goodness has been made known in this guy's life. And not only that, this guy is rich. And so when you think about how that God has shown favor and goodness and blessing on an, with an abundant crop, they would also begin to see and sense that this fact, guy being rich, that that too would be evidence of God's blessing upon his life. And yet, if this good old country boy this good old farmer perceives what has happened to him as being a blessing from God, a sign of God's goodness and a sign of God's favor. There is absolutely no evidence of it in the parable that Jesus tells. At no point in this story does this rich farmer who's got this abundant crop look up to God and say, God, I couldn't have done this without You. I mean, I couldn't contribute to the health of the soil. I couldn't contribute to the amount of sun and rain that my crops received. At no point in this parable does the farmer thank God for God's favor and God's blessing and God's goodness. And not only that, um, this farmer doesn't seek God's counsel and guidance as to how to use this great abundant crop that he's been given. In fact, as the parable goes, this man only consults one person about what he should do with this great abundant crop himself. 
What should I do with this great crop? And not only does he only consult himself, he only considers one option. And the option is just to build more barns so that I can store more of my stuff. There is no evidence anywhere in the Scripture that this man believed that this was a result of God's favor, God's blessing, and God's goodness. There is no evidence in the parable that this man ever considered possibly selling some of his abundant crop to others so that they could enjoy the bounty for themselves. There is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that that this man ever thought about sharing the abundance of his crop with people whose crop was not as abundant, or sharing this crop with people that could not afford a crop like this and to simply give it to them as a gift. There is no evidence in this story, this parable, that, um, that this man cared about them, that he even allowed people to come in after he had harvested his crop and allowed others to glean what was left like Ruth was allowed to do by Boaz in that Old Testament book that bears her name. And instead, he decides to keep it all for himself. Now you might be thinking, well, is there really anything wrong with that? I mean, is there really anything wrong with like keeping all of this for yourself to store up this grain for uh, another time. I mean, don't you remember the story in the Old Testament of Joseph, how he interpreted Pharaoh's dream? And, and he said that the dream should be interpreted this way, that God wants you to store up for yourselves for seven years all that you can and save it for a rainy day. Well, to be accurate, it wasn't a rainy day he was saving it for. It was a devastating drought. But for seven years, Joseph saved up and stored the grain so that it could be used when the drought came. But make no mistake about it, this farmer in our text today is no Joseph. Because when Joseph was storing that grain, Joseph was storing that grain for the benefit of all the people. Joseph was storing that grain for the benefit of the land. And in this story, he's doing it all for himself. Think about how many times in this parable does the farmer say, me, my, mine, I. He's storing all of this up for himself. He wants to store it up so that he can just kick back and relax for the rest of his days and eat and drink and be merry. And you're saying to yourself, maybe, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I mean, he worked hard for it. Why shouldn't he save it and just eat, drink, and be merry? I mean, isn't there story after story throughout the Bible of how people would celebrate a successful harvest by throwing celebrations and having these elaborate feasts and banquets and events? Uh, there's nothing wrong with when you have had such a great crop that you store it up and you enjoy it for a while. And I think Jesus would agree to a point. 
There's nothing wrong with celebrating the fruit of your labor and enjoying a good banquet and feast as you celebrate the harvest. But Jesus wants us to balance that with the injunction to care for the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized and the maimed, the least and the last and the lost. And until God's voice interrupts this story, it's just a man and his possessions. But then God speaks. This is the exaggerated part of the story. God speaks out loud to this farmer and tells him that on this day, you're going to die. And all of the things that you've stored up for yourself, you will never be able to enjoy. And if you listen real closely, you can hear the words of Jesus that He said back in chapter 9. What is the point? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? To lose himself. And it's at this point in the story that Jesus ends with a summary. He wants to make sure that you and I get the spiritual lesson of the parable. And He says to them, don't be so consumed with storing up for yourselves earthly treasures that you are not rich in the ways of God. It's as if He's trying to say that one day you and I are going to die and what is going to define the way that we lived our lives? Is it going to be our self-interest? Or is it going to be our deeds of mercy and love? The farmer in our story thought that the action required to his predicament was to build more silos to stash more stuff. But Jesus seems to be saying that the action required is to look beyond yourself. To see how the blessings that you have received might be used to bless others. The biggest problem with this story is it's so hard for you and me to see ourselves in it. Because we're not rich, most of us anyway. And yet, when you compare the way we live to the way the rest of the world lives, I would suggest to you that we probably are rich. But make no mistake about it, this is not about how much wealth you have. It's about what you do with what you have. The point of it is really not how much do you have in your stock portfolio or what do you list on your W-2. It's about what do you do with what you have. And Jesus is saying, don't be so focused, so consumed with earthly treasures that you're not rich in the ways of God. If I were the editor of the Gospel of Luke, I would have said to Luke, Luke, you can't just leave us hanging like this. What does it mean to be rich 
in the ways of God. Surely you could list that out for us so that we'd know that if we do it, we got it. And yet Luke doesn't tell us in this part of the story. But if you've been reading through this Gospel at all, he provides some pretty good ideas of what it means to be rich in the ways of God. It's using what you've been blessed with to bless others as evidence in the story of the Good Samaritan that helped the man lying on the road left for half dead. Being rich in the ways of God is listening to the words and the teachings of Jesus like Mary did when Martha got upset and complained about her doing it. Being rich in the ways of God is trusting that God will provide your daily bread for you just as Jesus taught when He taught His disciples how to pray. Being rich in the ways of God is in essence looking beyond ourselves for opportunities to share what we've been blessed with with others. Amen.